to Digital Transformation with Jack Marr and Jay Mata. Digital Transformation is about so much more than technology. It's about refocusing on people and value. It's about leveraging technology to build more meaningful relationships and enabling and empowering our associates, building engagement and giving them the tools and opportunity to do what they do best and even do it better. It's about culture, relationships, and tools that can unlock customer obsession in an organization. It drives innovation and responsiveness that propels your organization and delights your stakeholders, creating and building relationships founded on value, creation, and delivery. Jay, this is going to be a really important show for us. Number one, this is our last show of season one, and uh, I do want to thank a lot of people for that. Of all of the things that we've talked about, it is the simplest and hardest thing to do, and it is the most important. People are in a low-trust, unsafe environment. People play a very small game. They don't, they don't start to take the risks. They don't speak up. They, don't, they, don't, they settle for mediocrity that way. You're absolutely right. We're going to hear the last two of Andrew Kingery's 20 Laws of Value Creation. That's awesome. I always look forward to those, Jeff. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk to Jason. Welcome to Digital Transformation with Jack Marr and Jay Mata. Today, we're happy to have Jason Hollins joining us. Welcome, Jason. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Jason, it is good to have you here. Hey, Jason, give us that bird's eye view of who you are and what exactly do you do? That's a great and circuitous question, actually. Uh, December will be my 20th anniversary in IT, and I've been very fortunate to have a diverse career. I mean, the, the main theme of the last 10 years, product management is kind of the simplest shorthand, but, you know, my roles have typically been more end-to-end from Blue Sky through new operational uh, implementation. So do you service once the client's been taken on, or are you, are you in there to actually, do, are you there to help uh, get the client on board, if you would, or, or is it more along the lines of the deliverables? It really depends on the engagement. Um, I've, I've done it both ways. I definitely prefer doing end-to-end because it's much more satisfying to see, you know, to go from that blue sky, eliciting the requirements and, and strategic vision and actually seeing it in action is, uh, you know, certainly much more gratifying than doing a piece of it. But if people want me just for a piece of it, then that's what I'll do. One of the things that we really wanted to talk about, and uh, Jason, I know we had spoken briefly about before, is the, the necessity for psychological safety in our work environment so that folks have that flexibility and freedom to act in the way that will enable them to be more innovative and empowered and feel safe in doing so. Yeah, absolutely. In the last year, I've been focusing you know, on sort of agile theory and scrum processes and that sort of thing. But as I was reflecting on it, like one of the fundamental agile principles is people over process. And there is you know, scads of articles about agile process, you know, various methodologies and that sort of thing. But it really got me thinking about what underpins that. Like, what are the barriers to, to process? And I came across a great definition for psychological safety by... Amy Edmondson, who is a Harvard Business School professor, she coined this term back in 1999, but her definition of psychological safety is a belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. I first encountered this principle, although framed a little differently in my scrum training, which was freedom to fail. And the idea there is it's not freedom from responsibility, it's not freedom from accountability, but it's freedom 
from personal ridicule if you try something and it doesn't work. That is very important because if people are in sort of a low-trust, unsafe environment, people play a very small game. They don't take risks. They don't speak up. And you get mediocrity that way. And if you want a truly high-performing team, you won't need a high-trust environment where people do feel personally safe to really put themselves or put their ideas on all them because the person themselves is never in jeopardy. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. It is so important. And in the DevOps language, we hear about high trust environments all the time. And I feel like sometimes folks misunderstand or don't get the full import. And I love what you said about it's not a freedom from accountability, but it is a freedom to take good risks, to be enabled and empowered to be innovative, to think differently and to try different things. And part of that is we need to have the right infrastructure in place that will support that strong resilience of our systems so that when we have an issue, we can roll it back or or fail forward, depending on the instance and the circumstances. But I think there are so many components of this, and some we'll, we'll talk about today. Others, I, I know we're talking about in some other uh, conversations, such as how we would adjust our uh, structure of the organization, and particularly from an HR perspective, how we adjust the way we define roles and how the, we evaluate performance. And when folks, you know, feel like there's going to be repercussions from a mistake or an error, you know, it certainly does shut down and limit how far they're willing to extend themselves. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And I love the way you phrase that about, you know, having that safety to try things, to, to run small experiments and to accomplish things collectively as opposed to having an individual winner uh, and a bunch of folks that are spectators. Right. Yeah, and this and this idea is by no means unique to me, although it's something surprisingly that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. I mean, Google did a five-year study called Project Aristotle, and they found that psychological safety was far and away the most important of the five dynamics that set successful teams apart. So this has been known about for a long time, but the fact that it's not being discussed and developed, it really interests me, and I think it's an important thing to get into. Because it sounds really touchy-feely on one level, but in reality... It takes a ton of discipline and dedication and a lot of discomfort, honestly, to, to make this happen and make it work. You're right. And it's easy to talk about, but it's really elusive and hard to do. And in particular, I think it's especially with folks who have been in their roles or in their organizations for a long period of time, because that was not the tenor of what boomers grew up in, for example. That is a very, very different feel. In fact, I can remember being counseled as a relatively junior manager that one of the things that needed to happen if I wanted to move up above the director level was I needed to, quote, have blood on my shoes. I had to have demonstrated that I could do the hard things, that I could fire someone. It was very much about a command and control, very authoritarian kind of environment. Arguably, it worked back in the day. But today, it is about the most ineffective thing that, that you can do. You will drive folks away rather than do what we really want to do of build up our uh, organizations and our capabilities and our strengths and our people into being as good as they can be to make the, the good better and the better best uh, kind of approach. And that touchy-feely, as you mentioned, where that used to be a bit of a stigma, 
Now it's a very positive thing, and in no small part because it's effective. It actually works with today's workforce and in the context of Agile and, and DevOps. And, and even when we look to things like uh, ITIL in, in its latest iteration, we see a whole lot more discussion around collaboration, about team, uh, about how we can support each other and you know elevate uh, the bar for everybody. Absolutely, yeah. And it's interesting how you brought up the notion of what worked. What supposedly works on the surface doesn't necessarily mean it's working optimally. If you look at education, say in the 50s, right, the way you'd modify the behavior of a child was to put a dunce cap on their head and put them in the corner. And it was very, very much based on ridicule. And now we look at that and say, well, that's terrible, not only because it's, like, unethical to do, but intuitively we know this, but also research backs this up, is that when you approach behavior that way, you are, in fact, reinforcing the very thing you're trying to correct out. It's the same thing if, you know, you yell at your dog. I don't try to compare people to dogs, obviously, but some of the principles still apply. You know, so that's sort of the shaming and humiliation that we used to do to children that is hopefully horrifying to us now is still very much part of the corporate culture. And, yeah, it works sort of, I suppose, but, I mean, there are things that work better. Hopefully we've evolved in terms of education, and hopefully we can evolve the workplace as well. Absolutely. No small part, a lot of that came from the culture that we were in at the time. So the formal structures, the functional organization of most organizations today is based on an industrial age approach of scale and also to the response of the military industrial complex of World War II, where there was a lot of formal control of a very different approach to culture and organization. And we've evolved since then. At least most of us have, and many organizations have and are trying to. But it's tough for some folks to make that change. Number one, making them aware that what we thought in the past wasn't always correct. And that not only is this a good thing to do, it makes it life nicer for all of us. But the fact that it actually is in demonstrating how much more effective this approach is versus the carrot and stick approach is a very positive message, and I'm happy that we can help folks see that and share that with them and encourage folks to take a much better approach versus what we, to your point, at least thought worked or worked well enough in the past. Yeah, absolutely. How would you suggest folks get started? Well, I mean, ideally in an organization, it would start with senior leadership and look at the various groups within an organization as co-equal partners. In tech orgs in particular, all of the <laughs> customer frustrations, whether it's from the sponsor level or the marketing and sales level or the operational level, all of that pressure converges in engineering. And it's frequently seen as, as you know, engineering development's fault. And if you, if you look at all those sort of quadrants working together as sort of iterating and being co-equal and working together, that sets a much better tone and it, and it tees things up to work better. The thing is, sometimes you don't get that. I mean, some, to your point, there is a, a mentality in business that some leaders are very much opposed to this idea of psychological safety. So this is something you can do as an individual or within groups. One thing that's really important is to be very direct with the behaviors and ideas, but be gentle with people. To use like kids as an example again, if, if you saw like a four-year-old throwing a tantrum, you, know, you wouldn't. You may be irritated by the behavior, but you wouldn't, in the back of your mind, saying that's a bad, evil child, right? You would, <laughs> right. You'd say that the behavior is separate from the identity of the kid. 
But again, we don't treat adults that way. We see the obnoxious salesperson as being competent or the executive as being mean. We define them, we wrap up behavior and identity very closely. If you can unpack those two things, though, it's possible to be extremely candid with the behavior, but the, the dignity of the individual is always preserved. So I think that's really important. Uh, right. That segregation of person versus behavior or activity, that's a critical piece and can be very specific about identifying behaviors or outcomes that are not okay without endangering the individual. And uh, I think that's a, a really important point. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you. Sure. I also think that we can begin organizationally with some relatively simple things like Simon Sinek's golden circle about who we are, why we exist, what is our core mission, what are our, our values. And I think that all kind of plays in here too. And I absolutely agree. It has to start at the top. And it has to be sustained by the top, by supporting the behaviors, the structures, even adjusting the language that we use as leaders with our folks. And it almost has to be a show me kind of a thing. We need to prove that we really are not just talking the talk, but we're prepared to walk the walk of this kinder, gentler, more positive uh, approach than what we've really seen in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to transform an organization, it does need, well, <laughs> to my quadrant point, though, the top is not necessarily the right way to put it even. But to start, the senior leadership definitely needs to set a tone. Um, but one thing, too, though, is let's say you are in a fairly toxic environment where this is not, this sort of thing is not valued. Like, how do you, you know, if you're like a solo scuba diver or something, like, how do you self-rescue? And... One of the things I find pretty helpful is to use, you know, frames. And a frame is basically, it's kind of an artificial mindset in a sense, but it's, it's just sort of like a default setting, basically, when you go into a conversation. And two that I've, and these are kind of life coaching principles, actually, that I picked up somewhere along the line, but um, one of them is that people are fundamentally well-intentioned and are genuinely trying to do the right thing. Right. And the people either are or aspire to be competent. And when I say this, I know that everyone is out there probably is going to say, well, this person isn't or that person isn't. And that may well be. But the problem is if you flip that and say the person I have difficulty with is maliciously intentioned or is completely incompetent, that is not a helpful perspective to have because if, the, if either of those conditions are true, there is no possibility of improving the relationship. But if you entertain the possibility that... There is some positive intention in that person's behavior, or if that person is not competent, they want to be, and you can help them with that. Then you can make some headway, even with the most difficult people. And I, and this is how I deal with difficult people. And actually, you know, it, it's great to do, have people that we get along with and volunteers to rapport with. I love that. But sometimes the person you have the most difficulty with is the person that ends up being your best ally and you learn the most from. They're worth investing in. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. Sometimes I talk about finding your nemesis uh, yes. and befriending them to further the goals of the organization. And I absolutely agree. You know, Douglas McGregor's Theory X and Theory Y about folks that really want to be fantastic, I ascribe to that as well. I have found that the more you empower people, the more you assume good intent, the more that you enable folks to rise to the occasion, I have yet to be disappointed in the results of that. So I, I absolutely agree with you. Now, I think when we talked before, you may have mentioned that you're doing some 
blogging or, or other ways of sharing your ideas? Is, is that the case or is that upcoming? It is upcoming, yeah. I've got uh, about 10 articles that uh, there are variations on this theme that I'm working on. I'm looking for, I mean, at the very least, they'll be on LinkedIn in the next month or two, but I'm looking at finding other channels for them as well, yeah. Great. I mean, one of the things that I'm going to be exploring here is how do you actually sort of look at this and say, well, that sounds kind of good, but how does this actually work? And that in itself is a much more challenging issue. Right. This, I think, is some of the most interesting and most challenging parts for folks. The technology is easy. The people are the hard part. And this gets right at the root of what has to be in place before we can even move on to anything else. Yeah, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Hi, this is Andrew Kingery with the Whitestone Consulting Group. In the next 60 seconds, I want to inspire you to be more intentional and effective at creating value. I'm covering the 20 laws that govern value creation two at a time. The law of direction says unless you know where a person is going, you cannot create value for them. Some people don't know where they are going and don't want your help figuring it out. In which case, go somewhere else. If someone can't or won't decide where they want to go, you cannot help them get there. And the law of priority is just like it sounds. Applying the law of linking to the higher priority goals or problems of others will directly affect your influence. As you seek to apply the law of linking, make sure to link the, to the biggest goals or problems of your customers or people. Linking your work to small problems will create small value. I'm Andrew Kingery, and this is Two Laws of Value Creation in 60 Seconds. If you want to learn more, head over to valuepractitioner.com. Standing on Shoulders, a leader's guide to digital transformation, written by Jack Marr and Carmen Diardo. On behalf of everyone who tries to improve the business outcomes of the technology work we do every day, I applaud the efforts taken and the writing of this book so others can replicate their amazing outcomes. This book fulfills the promise of documenting their journeys and lessons learned and showing how the promise of creating world-class technology organizations can be within the reach of everyone. Gene Kim. Get your copy of Standing on Shoulders, A Leader's Guide to Digital Transformation at Amazon.com or at Barnes & Noble or at your favorite bookseller. So, Jay, let's look back a little bit on season one. Was there anything in particular that jumped out at you that's been a journey for you and you've been great? You've really come along. You've done a great job of grounding us to business issues and some of the fundamentals while letting me dig into the technology side a little bit. We had such a diversity of folks that we talked to. I really have enjoyed every one of these conversations well, what stood out to me, Jack, was show one through 12. But one through 12 really stood out to me because it was all it was all foreign to me, you know, something completely new and just so every one of them was different. And you did a great job of keeping up and, and helping us stay tethered to the real world, and I thank you for that. So season two, a little bit of change. We're going to see a couple of additional formats come in to season two. Uh, there are a few of the technologies that I know folks are Struggling with uh, trying to understand what it means to them. 
things like cryptocurrency, blockchain, DevOps for a lot of folks. We're going to look at what security looks like and how important that is and how attainable it is for folks. That is deceptively simple compared to some of the other things that we saw that looked easy but turned out to be really hard. Man, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into Season 1 and hope you got some value out of it because we most certainly did on this end.